1: I'm alright,
0: Tom. How are you? Hey, Lucky Team. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good <laughs> question. <laughs> Hi, this is
2: actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good
1: morning, Tom. How you doing?
2: Hey, at least I got the Tom part right.
0: The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation.
2: This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show. More with investigative journalist and author Susan McClellan straight ahead. How much time was spent in, in France, and and how much, um, I don't know what you would call it, uh, rehabilitation perhaps, uh, occurred there, and, and how did that lead Robbie to then go to Canada?
1: So for me to tell the Canada story will be a spoiler alert. So I'm not going to say that, Uh, but I can say that. So when the boys arrived in France, all of the boys, um, there was certainly a huge attempt to see if there was any surviving family for these boys. And it's not like today where we have DNA on file or we've got Internet. This was sending letters back and forth to these different countries, telegraphs, to get identities, and you know, and it was complicated further by some of these young boys arriving at the camps, and their names being anglicized, or sorry, not not anglicized, but Germanized, to make them look like communists and not um, Jews, because the Jews would be killed if a communist child was there. They they probably had a greater chance of survival, so the names were all wrong, um, and so. Uh, arriving in France, that was the first attempt, and there was some. So there was an exodus of some of the boys, nearly very close to the beginning, who had found relatives and left the OSF. Not a lot, but an, an enough. So with Robbie, I guess the healing experience was very different for each each boy. There was a, a whole cohort of boys that included Eli who wanted to return to their faith. They wanted their faith. They wanted the Shabbat. They wanted to pray, they wanted their stories, they wanted to do the the, the, the Kaddish to honor the dead, and then there was a large cohort of boys who did not. So those boys were separated, and then there was an attempt to mentor them. So the boys were, Robbie was matched up with a former professor of the Sorbonne who um, had lost his entire family at Auschwitz, Mm -hmm. and that man, Manfred, became very close to Robbie um, and, and helped him through the journey. So with each boy, it was different, and it was very much catered to them. There was a real sort of gentleness of what's best for each child. I mean, one of the things that the boys were told arriving in France is, don't tell your story, you know, forget about it, move on in your life. And, and Robbie talks about this, but uh, the it was realized early on that Robbie didn't want to talk about it. And so Manfred allowed him to speak, and they bonded over sharing of their stories. So, I think that was one of the key things with the healing journey for all the boys is that it ended up becoming very much original now, of course, in Robbie's story without giving any spoiler alerts is his story becomes even more phenomenal because serendipitously he meets his own relatives he didn't even know about um, an aunt and cousins in France, and one of the richest women in all of Europe wanted to adopt Robbie. And, in fact, you know, he's come from a very small little shuttle in Eastern Europe. And now, all of a sudden, he's staying in a grand apartment that's next to the Rothschild apartment. He's going to the first Cannes Film Festival. He's going to operas. He's going out on her barge in Paris and having lunches with famous actors and actresses. He thinks there was Edith Piaf was there. So uh, This is like
2: a Dickens novel.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's true. It's all
2: true. That's what. That's what makes it uh, such a great story. What went into? Uh, was it was it planned to write it and publish it for middle grade readers? And and how was that yes. decision made?
1: Uh, well, when Robbie's son when Robbie would speak, he hasn't, of course, during COVID and his health issues now, uh, but he would be lecturing and speaking to high schools and middle schools all over North America, and, um, and I was, when I would stay at his house, I would read these letters, um, thousands of letters, and most from young people uh, being touched by his story, and so we all felt, it, I, I think it was just like a, a non-question that the book would be a young adult for them. Uh, because they wanted the story. And of course, the young adult market, uh, you have an adult market there too. More young adult, more adults read young adult books, um, than say a book like this, a memoir, um, saying to a young middle schooler, why don't you read this? Um, and we really wanted that. We wanted to, you know, an attempt to get this on school curriculum, um, and, and really I give a book to the people that have listened uh, to Robbie over the years, and I also love writing for that age category. Even though I, I write adult books too, because there are change makers, right? There are there are youth. They're the ones that can actually have the fire to do something when they read stories like this to say, "We want change. We uh, don't want to have this happening anymore."
2: You know, it's it's interesting because I notice a lot of times the books that are targeted for young adult and and uh, teen readers tend to be about teens you know people their age that they can relate to what they went through and so on and and these stories are very often very appealing to that audience Mm -hmm. but it seems funny continuing to refer to robbie even though he starts out as a young boy as robbie because he's in his 90s now yes he's, he's turned 90
1: in february yeah, <laughs> and, and, but we end the book, you know, when he comes to Canada, which was 17. So can you imagine, like, a 17, 18-year-old and 17 coming to the United States all by themselves? I know lots of youth do that, That from the majority of readers, they're going to go, what? So, but that's
2: yeah. not as uncommon as it sounds today.
1: No, there no, were a no. lot, and
2: and of course, really, when you think about it, it's not as uncommon today as it should be. When you look to the American Southern border,
1: I know. Yeah, no, for sure, and and here too, in Canada as well, yes.
2: Um, and and that's one of the things that makes this uh, this story uh, um, again. I, I use the word appealing to young readers. Um, because they have questions about how, how do how do kids end up on their own wandering around in what to them is a foreign country.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was certainly, having read all the letters, not all of them, there were too many, but having read so many of the letters of what young people were sending Robbie, I just, they want to know these stories, and um certainly robbie 's story is very much about resiliency and finding meaning in life again, and Robbie, I know, hopes that 's what other people take away. you know when he talks, he talks about find something in your life to be appreciative of, uh, just anything and and appreciate that everything that you do have, look to what you do have, not what you don 't have, and just sort of pivot life from there. And Robbie talks about that. Um, and, and the young readers really identify with that sort of message because they're dealing with a lot. They're dealing with economic and work and students, um, academic uncertainties. I mean, they're dealing with now the virus. They're dealing with conflict still in the world. Uh, so it's, it's how, how, do we, how do we build resilient children that can handle the ups and downs and bumps of life?
2: And and that's the importance of telling stories uh from that long ago because now the memories of World War II are fading as the participants are dying off. Yes. And there's I
1: think Robbie's one of the last remaining Bucumba boys.
2: Yeah, there's um there's we're losing a connection to that period of time and it's it's becoming mm-hmm. like way back in the olden days.
1: Yeah.
2: How relevant are those stories from way back in the olden days um, to the contemporary uh, um, audiences?
1: Well, I think there's a number of things. Uh, I think on an emotional point of view, our entire evolution is based on the evolution of cultures and countries, and so we are who we are today because collectively we've experienced some really heroic—oh my gosh, I've had too many interviews today—horrific experiences. Um, And so we have to know where we came from, all of us have come from, and, you know, on a much more practical point of view—and this is what gets Robbie still really angry—is we are repeating the past, so we need to have these stories. We need to be reminded that, you know, and, and, and don't start with the Holocaust. Right before the Holocaust was the Armenian genocide. You know, we have had genocides and the elimination of the, the strive of our collective humanity to remove the other, the, the people we don't know, the people we feel threatened by since the beginning of time, and, you know, Speaking of Einstein, wasn't it him that said, we cannot solve today's problems through the same way, But it's that that quote, through the same way we did in the past. You know, we, we need to learn from these stories.
2: Well, trying that, I, I think one of, one of his quotes was uh, uh, something to the effect of uh, trying the same thing over and over and expecting different results is uh, yes. The epitome insanity. Of... The
1: definition of insanity. Yeah. yeah. Thank
2: you. Yeah.
1: And yeah. that's and, and that's so... one
2: example. I'm not sure that's the quote you were going for, and I think I I was starting to to recognize it a little bit as you were uh, <laughs> trying trying to come up with it, but um, it's it's important to look back and know where we came from. To really identify where we where we want to go.
1: Yeah, yeah, and not repeat the past, which we're seeing. We've seen it, you know, at the end of World War II. They said never again, never again. And since then, how many genocides have we had? So we yeah. are doing it over, over again.
2: Yeah, another quote, and I have no idea who to attribute it to, but. You know, experience is uh, being able to recognize a mistake when we make it again.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And and that's why stories Um, like this are so important. And and books like yours, um, Susan, really bridge history. Because we won't have the Robbies in the world in a very short bit of time. No. To share it from a, a, a first hand experience.
1: Yes. And also seeing that, you know, there wasn't that much difference between Robbie and, you know, someone of the same age in Kalamazoo, right? Like, it's the same wants and needs and strive to live is there among all of us. And Maybe if we can start seeing that as opposed to what we think are differences, we can hold each other better and hold each other's stories better. Um, and I think that's one of the things that these books help do is say, you know, this happened nearly 76 years ago, uh, but that boy's not that much different than you. Um, what can you learn from him? And, you know, uh, that sort of thing. So I think there's, there is relevance there.
2: Where can people find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future?
1: Well, I have a website. It's s m c c l e l l a n d S M C C L E L L A N D.com. And I got a link to Robbie's book on there, and certainly if anyone Reaches out through the website and wants to speak with Robbie. I can I can try and facilitate something um, if he's feeling up to it. I know he would love to. He loves talking to people, and especially since where he is living right now is still in lockdown, I think he'd love to talk to uh, people, particularly some young people.
2: We'll leave it there for now. But Susan, thanks so much for spending this time with me and, and sharing. Robbie's story and your experience writing this book with our audience today, and keep up the good work.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank
2: you. Take care. Again, that was award-winning investigative journalist and author Susan McClellan. She teamed up with uh, the survivor of the uh, Holocaust to write his story. Robbie uh, Wiseman is his name. The title of the book is Boy from Buchenwald. The true story of a Holocaust survivor. And with that, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program.
0: From the Tom
3: Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark.
4: Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
2: Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is the executive editor of National Geographic History Magazine, and uh, she's joining me by phone to talk about a uh, a new tome, if you will, from National Geographic, just in time for the seventy fifth anniversary of key events of World War Two, that'll be celebrated over the next uh, uh, several months and into the summer. Um, and in the book is called Atlas of World War Two, with history's greatest conflict revealed through rare wartime maps and new cartography. Yes, it's an atlas. Um, kind of like the old atlases I have in the trunk of my car, that, that don't show all the new routes. Um, anyway, joining me uh, by phone is Amy Briggs. Amy, welcome to the show.
3: Oh, thank you for having me.
2: What is the coolest thing about uh, some of these these old maps?
3: And many of these old maps have never been published before. So that that in and of itself is a, just a rarity. You haven't seen these before. But I have to say, I think my favorite part of the maps are the ones that have the uh, the written annotations on them. You can tell that you know some this was somebody's map that they kept in their pocket and they right. made marks of you know what were the important locations, where were they trying to go. All of those things it gives it just a very personal touch. So you get the sense that this really belonged to someone who was out there making decisions in battle.
2: One of the things that I found really interesting was the um, some of the maps that that show like uh, where mines are mm-hmm. along the beach. It, it was, um, I, I, I mean, these things bring the war into focus in in real ways
3: i think so i think it gives you it, it can it can almost transport the it can almost transport you back to that place and that location and at least it gives you at the very least it gives you an understanding of what the what the the people who were fighting, what they saw, what they thought was there, what they believed the landscape was like, what they believed their routes and their plans were going to be, you get a real sense of their intention and, and mindset. So it really does make it come alive in that way. It's not just a piece of paper. This was this was your survival plan, you know. You know, we have this one map of um, of Omaha Beach from D Day, and yeah. it's the first time that this one has been published. And it's from the, um, the beach master of one section of, of the beach there. And it has his, his little notes, and it has, you know, the fold marks. You can tell that this was folded up and tucked away and carefully guarded. It was top secret. Um, and, like, the beach master's job was to direct the locations of the, the men and the equipment and to say, you know, you go here, put that there. And he had to use that map to figure out where everybody needed to go. Uh, so it was not only...
2: A, a map but it was it was a tool. Well, you know what what's interesting and I hadn't really thought about this until uh I, I was looking at a at a publication from the uh National Geographic from uh earlier from an earlier uh, interview that I did. Um, and it's what's fascinating to me and I hadn't really thought about it but these maps can actually tell stories.
3: Yes, very much so. Very much so. You know, you look, and the thing that's wonderful about this book is that we have maps from from both sides. It's not just the United States maps or the British maps. We have Japanese maps, German maps. So you understand what the, you know, what the Axis powers were thinking, what their goals were. It gives you a really well-rounded view of the conflict
2: why is it important to preserve this material?
3: How long do you have? <laughs> That's a very big question. Uh, it's important to preserve this material for a lot, of, a lot of reasons. First and foremost, we want to know what happened. We want to know what happened in order to understand the origins, in order to understand the events, in order to understand their outcomes. You can't measure those things, you can't assess those things without seeing and understanding how people envisioned their world, how they interpreted their world. Maps are, you know, just one way that they did that. Um, It also serves as a testament. To the great sacrifices of the people, not only the leaders, the names we all know, the FDRs, the, uh, the Churchills, but also the men and women who were on the ground, the soldiers, the resistance, the spies, this massive, coordinated, cooperative effort of people from all different backgrounds coming together to fight against some of the most inhumane things that have ever, ever occurred in the world. You need to have a, a record of the great good that they did in in fighting off, you know, the, the powers of, of Germany and Japan.
2: Now, when I say Atlas of World War II, this isn't, you know, cover to cover, map after map after map. There are some amazing photography uh, or photographs and articles as well but what happens is and it's it's kind of interesting because if it was just map after map it might not be as compelling but yet once you start into the book you will almost ignore the photographs and and all the wonderful articles to look at these maps they're um they're just so interesting and from some, so many different uh points of view and and parts of the uh of the war and what was going on at the time.
3: I think you raise such a, a great point about the book, in that the maps for, for some people are going to be the first thing that catches their attention, and they're going to get lost in those maps. But then they can go back to the book and see the photographs, or go back to the book and see the artifacts. There's so many different dimensions to have the, the book pull you in and tell you a story about the war.
2: Now, are there um, spe- specific events that stand out in the book that we will be commemorating uh, the 75th anniversary of over the next year?
3: I know the, the biggest one is, is D-Day and Operation yeah. Overlord. Uh, the, that's the 75th anniversary coming up this June. Uh, so that's, I would say, one of the biggest. And the, the coverage of that in this book is, is phenomenal. We have wonderful new National Geographic maps showing um, what we call the Atlantic Wall, what the, what the Allies were going up against along the uh, Atlantic coast of, uh, of France and, and, and Germany's territory. Um, there's also this fantastic map of Omaha Beach, and it was the top secret map that was carried by one of the beach masters. And it has his handwritten notes on it. You can see, like, different locations that he's marked in different positions. It was the beach master's job to direct where the men and the equipment needed to go. And so he had annotated on this map that we re- that is in the book all of these different positions. But the other wonderful thing, like, I just love this, you can see the fold marks in the map. You can see how this was tucked away, you know, in his kit and guarded. And then also, you can tell that after the war was over, he annotated on the bottom, you know, in his own handwriting, used this chart during Stay on the Beach and then signed his name. Stay on the Beach. I mean, that's, so, that's, that's such an understatement of what went on on the beach that day. But you get a real sense that this, this was his personal survival guide his personal plan for what was going to happen that day.
2: Now, uh, National Geographic has been around for 135 years and obviously has a huge library of great photographs and and documents from not just that period but the the whole last 130-plus years. Uh, How much of this is new stuff, or or stuff that wasn't pulled from the Nat Geo archive?
3: All of the National Geographic maps, there are more than 100 of them, were newly created for this book. So we went back and took whatever existing maps we had and updated them with the latest and greatest in terms of mapping technology, but also the latest and greatest in terms of history and what what is known about all of the different battles and all of the different sites that are mapped in the book. So all of those are new. Um, The other things that we were able to bring in, we collaborated with the International Museum of World War II. The museum's director, Kenneth Rendell, wrote forward for us. But Neil Kagan, the book's editor, was able to go into their collection to get original artifacts and documents and to bring those together into the the collection as well.
2: And a lot of these maps uh, would not have been... In color, if they hadn't been recreated,
3: um, the the Nat Geo ones, yes, we and the the older ones certainly. Um, but many of the the archival maps, as you're seeing them printed in the book, is how they looked. So if you see a map and it looks like it's green and blue, and then it, it was. We reproduced the the archival ones at, faithfully. But the National Geographic maps, you'll see them. They're different colors. They have different typefaces. Um, they are all up-to-date and new.
2: And, and how are those maps created, based on narratives, on other maps, all of the above?
3: All of the above. National Geographic still has a robust cartography department. Uh, the cartographer on this book is a guy by the name of Greg Ujansky, and he spent... Hours upon hours upon hours researching all of these maps and the placement of every land feature, every movement of every army, you name it. If there's a rabbit hole, he's been down it. Uh, he, de- he dedicated the last few years to working on this book, and the, the effort and the passion really show in the end, pod- in the end product.
2: How many, how many people, and you mentioned the last few years, um, how long has this book been in the works and, and how many people did it take to compile all of this?
3: Um, the book has been in the works for uh, the last two to three years. Um, we're always looking ahead to anniversaries and events to see what the next big you know thing for, for our history and our, our, our historical atlases will be. And so this has been on our, our radar for quite some time. I mean, the, the team itself is pretty significant. I mean, Neil Kagan is the editor, and he heads up his own team of researchers and archivists to go and comb all of, you know, not only museum collections, but personal collections, stuff in your grandfather's attic. Like, they go everywhere to try to find the artifacts and the documents that nobody else has. Steve Hislop, is, um, he's a longtime author for National Geographic, and written a ton of history for us. Um, So he also has his own team of researchers that help him, you know, pull together the text. Cartography, we have, you know, Greg is the primary cartographer on this, but he also worked with several military historians, Paris Andrews in particular, to refine the maps and review the text and keep everything sort of, you know, comprehensive across across the book and consistent. But then you also have, you know, our, our in-house team of book people, our, our editors, our editorial assistants, our photo researchers, our book designers. You know, there are so many different people um, weighing in on, you know, on this book and contributing. And it's a real team effort to put together a project like this.
2: And is preserving this this information, the stories contained, the images – is that for preservation's sake or are there things to be learned and and taken into consideration for people moving forward?
3: I mean I think that's one of the great questions of, of just history in general, not just World War Two. There sure. are many people who I think have that like well same concern, you know, why should we save these maps? Why should we save these things? And it's because these are the great stories of history, these are the great opportunities to understand the world as the men and women of the 1940s experienced it, how they rose to the occasion and sometimes failed to deliver in in times of great adversity, uh, great uncertainty. Um, World War II is also, it's full of great moments of heroism, but it's full of great in humanity, you know, the Holocaust, the Rape of Nanking, the Bataan Death March, all of these things we can't turn a blind eye to. We need to see humanity in its full capacity for greatness and for horror. And in order to, to do that, it helps to look, I think, back with some remove and to be able to see all of those tendencies on full display. I think it helps us in our own time to recognize. Moments where maybe we need to rise to an occasion.
2: I, I raise that question because I, in this modern era of of technology and mobile devices, we we live almost in a today forward mindset, and 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 I wonder if it isn't a little frustrating sometimes trying to remind people that we have a record on which to base decisions and plans and and the way we look at the world
3: yes i also think studying history is reassuring especially in this time of fast change and you know unprecedented you know you something happens five minutes ago in washington dc and it's on you know your your news feed five minutes later um and so you, you we get this sense of things happening and feeling like this has never happened before, this is unprecedented. But if you know your history, maybe things never happened this quickly before, but leaders doing questionable things, that's happened before. You know, it's, it's, it's nice to be able, it's comforting to be able to look back and see that humanity's been dealing with challenges from the beginning. And to be able to look to similar instances and see what people were able to achieve during moments of great hardship, I think, can be um, quite grounding. It can help settle people, I think, and make you understand that humanity is not just this one blip, that we've been, we've been here for a long time and we've been, we've been wrestling with the questions and, and contradictions of being human for a long time.
2: I think technology has changed real time in in a way that we see atrocities happening as they happen in a way that we didn't fifty years ago a hundred years ago mm-hmm. and you're right about uh about these things being sort of reassuring because you know I see social media posts all the time that talk about you know how frightening things are right now and it's never been this bad before and and all of that and then I look through some of the pages of a book like this and the book I'm talking about of course is this uh, atlas of world war 2 um from Na- uh from National Geographic it it reminds us that people have always been people and and good and bad things happen
3: And that the you know the uncertainty say of being in Paris when the Germans marched in, and not knowing was your country going to be there or not, were you going to be part of Germany for the rest of your life or were things going to change? It's, uh, these sorts of, of scary things, you know, are are I think very very common to human existence. And so I think that that's one of the reasons why it's so important to study the past and to look at, at books like this that do, a, I think, a very good job of not only telling the top story of the the military movements and the battles and the commanders, but also the story of the regular, everyday people on the ground, the people who were swept up by the Holocaust, the people who were fighting in the resistance movements. And what what struck me about the resistance is that they're, they're people from all different backgrounds. It's very diverse. It's not just one particular group fighting together. So they're coming from different points of view and able to unite against this horrible, evil thing. And, like, that's so inspirational.
2: Is there um, – you mentioned, of course, uh, the the landing at uh, Normandy, D-Day, and, mm-hmm. and that's going to be – commemorated the 75th anniversary of that will be commemorated in big ways all over the world probably uh, this June but um are there what are some other defining moments for you as a historian that you take away from from the World War 2 uh archive and, and this book in particular
3: of things um, I think that for me the section the, the section of the book that begins the Pacific War, where Japan was rising to power and how they were how that nation was moving throughout the Pacific Theater and into Asia. it was something that I didn't have as firm a grasp on until I read I read through this book. And in a lot of uh, a lot of what helped clarify things for me were the maps because they showed the Japanese movements. They showed how organized and coordinated their attacks were. And it wasn't something as an American that I think I really appreciated because as an American, I only really heard about Pearl Harbor, but and, and Hiroshima, and, you know, the, the Philippines, and MacArthur and I shall return, and all that. But the rest of it. The, what, were, what were the Japanese ambitions? What were they trying to do? That really frame, was, is framed in, in a way that I, I've not seen before. And the way that the maps really visually show you that story clarified so much for for me as to what was going on in that part of the world.
2: That's that's interesting yes. and and I I really related when you talked about a, a, an American perception of Japan's participation in the war because you know I can I can attest my my version of it is it begins with Pearl Harbor and ends with Hiroshima and that's about as much as I know about Japanese involvement in the war. And and have no real sense for what their aspirations may have been. Mhm.
3: And the the book does a great job too with the the prelude to the war in the european theater as well. I mean that story really starts 100 years ago this month with the end of world war 1, you know, and that planted the seeds for world war 2. So it literally starts, you know, in 1918 and with what was, you know, going on in Germany after the, after the peace conference. And, you know, Hitler's rise to power and the rise of dictators, you know, throughout Europe. And you get a very, you get the sense of how Germany, you know, just expands, sort of not, not little by little, but you get the step-by-step step about how, how they go, where they go, and all of a sudden, how the rest of the Western powers sort of wake up and go, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> um, but that is that you get the, the the rise of the war. And then the most of the book is the actual explosion of the war and what happens. But understanding where the war came from, I mean, the book does such a fantastic job of setting that up. And so you understand that the war just didn't happen, that there were many, many, many events that led up to it.
2: More with Amy Briggs, the executive editor of National Geographic History Magazine, about their new book, Atlas of World War II, is straight ahead.
0: Old Radio For a new generation Time Summer Program. The Time Summer Program. The Time Summer Program. Hey, <laughs> this is the unknown comic.
1: And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right
2: now. And now. And now too. And even now.
1: Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
2: More with Amy Briggs, the executive editor of National Geographic History Magazine, about their new book, Atlas of World War II, is straight ahead. You know, I always kid people from National Geographic because these books are huge. I mean, you put... (laughs) Sometimes they call them coffee table books. I think if you put legs on it, it could be a coffee table. But... It's,
3: a book like this has to be that big because you need to be able to see these maps big. Well, to appreciate and, the level of detail.
2: And and the thing is that one of the things that I that I've always admired about National Geographic is not just the quality of the photographs. Now, that's going to be a little different in this book because of the historical nature of some of the photographs. And the fact that they weren't taken by National Geographic photographers necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, But the reproductions are so amazing. And and then the other thing, I'm looking at at all of the things, and and I'm thinking about all of the people who had to play a role in this, the people who were writing copy for various articles and ramp-ups and things, you know, captioning for various photographs and illustrations, maps, and so on. But... There's continuity from start to finish. It isn't just this this bound collection of, of individual articles. It's, it
1: it really, really is We really
3: put such emphasis across all of our products on storytelling and on having a, a compelling narrative that takes you through an event. And if that storytelling isn't there, then... People people lose interest, unless, like, you're a map fanatic or a photo fanatic. And that's a very, like, small, I think, small but passionate group. But I think more people relate to a compelling story, one that catches you up in the sweep of all these events. And seeing the pictures of the people, the pictures of the things they carried – Having the, the the modern maps that we created to really orient you in the story, it's a very immersive experience.
2: Yeah, any um, anybody who's a fan of maps is going to love this book, but you don't have to be to love this book. You're going to end up loving the maps anyway because the story draws you in, and you want to immediately get some visual sense of, where this was all happening and how it all came together and the maps are right there it's it's really quite uh quite compelling as as i have been reading through it
3: i'm i'm glad to hear that the the book team really worked so very very hard on this for so very very long and it's such a joy to finally see the finished product and also to hear that you know people like yourself are are Responding so strongly and so positively to it.
2: Well, one of the questions that I always ask is, "Who is this book for?"
3: Hmm, I think the book is—it's a perfect gift for anybody who you know is interested in World War II. I think anybody who's interested in in history, in military history, like you said, in maps. Um, but someone who's looking for the, con- the context of explaining how the 20th century sort of got off to a start and what were the, what were the concerns, what were the conflicts, what were the, the nations of the world bumping up against each other about. And that's all in this book. The other thing is I, I think people who are interested in real human stories like I said, it's it's not just the the names you hear about the the FDR or the MacArthur. It's it's about the soldiers and the spies and the men and the women, and you you really get a sense of how much was at stake for how many people. You know, there are testimonies of people who survived the Bataan Death March. Um, we have you know accounts of people who were in the French Resistance and what they had to do to you know, to, to get things behind enemy lines to the to the spies. Um, it just it, it brings alive a part of, of time that, you know, is, is in the, the far past. I mean, we have people now who can't imagine what life before cell phones was like, so this must be a completely foreign country to them. I think it really helps parachute you down in the past and, and understand what was going on.
2: Amy, I can't. Help, but uh, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that you were interested in history before you became executive editor of National Geographic History Magazine. A um,
3: little bit. <laughs> what,
2: what, what? I,
3: a, I am am I'm a history nerd. I totally am. What, I Do you love it?
2: But but what what caused you to look to start looking back in that way to have such a, a passion for history?
3: I was one of the few who had a really great history teacher in high school. Most people I talk to who don't like history, it sounds like they didn't have great history teachers. They teachers focused on dates and places, and yeah. you need to know this for the test and check the box. Right. My my history teacher was a man uh, named Mr. Caruso, and he had a talent for bringing out the humanity of people. He was a, our U.S. History one teacher. And he talked about the Founding Fathers like they were real flesh-and-blood people. He talked about their strengths, but he also talked about their weaknesses. You know, I remember him sitting down and talking about Ben Franklin and sort of opened up with, well, Ben Franklin was actually kind of messing around with some women in Paris, and the whole class sat up like, what? Because it made Ben Franklin, it took Ben Franklin out of that key-in-a-kite you know, dotty old man, poor Richards Almanac thing, and made him a flesh and blood person.
2: Well and and, and the fact me. that he was probably the country's first blogger. <laughs> very <laughs> much. Very
3: much so with the Almanac.
2: Um let me let me just uh ask very quickly because we're almost out of time and I, I'm kind of a history fan too and and I think you've uh, uh, confirmed my my long-held opinion that that history is really the telling of stories and not the recitation of dates and places. Um, oh,
3: I agree. I agree. What it's,
2: what is uh, what is next for you?
3: What is next for me? Uh, my sure next probably... issue of History Magazine is what's next for me. We're working on our cover story on Jesse James. Oh, cool! Um, and so, which is a, it, it, so it's about his participation in the Civil War and how that experience shaped him and turned him into the bank robber that is known today. But his background with the Confederacy isn't as well-known. So we got a a great author to tell that story.
2: Well, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more, and and this is really just an opportunity to uh, uh, give a shameless plug for uh, National Geographic's web presence.
3: So you can find all of our products at National Geographic nationalgeographic.com at our website there's a, a store there and you can check out all the books and uh, especially Atlas of World War II and all of our other latest and greatest publications History Magazine is available there too uh, but the books are also available wherever books are sold so if you want to go to Amazon or you want to go to your local bookseller um, the books should be there and, uh, and ready for sale and ready for gifting to those people who love history in your life
2: well, and you're not just a history geek. You, you're, you've you're you got uh, some Star Wars and angry birds in your past. <laughs>
3: I, I have many talents, Yeah, <laughs> I know way too much about Star Wars.
2: <laughs> well, Andy, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and by all means, may the Force be with you.
3: May the Force be with you, too. Thank you so much for your time. Take care. Bye-bye.
2: That was uh, Amy Briggs. She is the uh, executive editor of National Geographic History magazine. Prior to her three years as executive editor, she has spent more than 15 years in book publishing with a focus on nonfiction. She is the author of several books, including two National Geographic kids' books and National Geographic Angry Birds Space and National Geographic Angry Birds Star Wars. Briggs earned a Bachelor of Arts from Princeton University. She lives in Arlington, Virginia, with her daughter and their four adorable cats. Anyway, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead.
3: From the Tom Sumner Show
2: Well, that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program and our uh, remembrance of the Holocaust. And uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, these conversations with authors called from the Tom Sumner Program archives, uh, Deborah Dash Moore from University of Michigan, Bernice Lerner, Heather Morris, Susan McClellan, and Amy Briggs from National Geographic great look back but we're looking forward to tomorrow and hopefully you'll be here with me as well in the meantime that's smoking george tickling the ivories let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room so i'm gonna do just that but i will be back tomorrow with another edition of the tom sumner program good night everybody the
0: tom sumner program is a live variety show we want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show